Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Professor Cam Donaldson, UNIS Chair, Pro-Vice-Chancellor Research at the University and a renowned health economist. Cam, thank you very much for talking to me today. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to uh, join you in a podcast, Craig. The pleasure's all mine, Cam. How have things been for you over the past three weeks? Well, just as bizarre as everyone else, I think. You know, I mean, obviously the main thing is your thoughts go out to those who are in more strife as a result of the the virus itself and just the different conditions that people are, are having to uh, to live in. But beyond that, it's been... Uh, just interest in just having to adjust to this new way of working. Uh, you know, if we're talking about uh, the university. I think the transition has been amazing in terms of what's happened and people's contributions to it. Definitely, that's something I want to talk to you about later on, Cam, is how, how you're keeping the university running. But we'll focus on, on how I introduced you there. You're uh, one of the most renowned health economists in the country. What is a health economist? I know that might be a bit of an obvious question, but what is it to people that don't know? Yeah, I, th- I think the best way of thinking about health economics is that, I mean, it's, 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 it's a branch of the, obviously the more general discipline of economics, which is a discipline that starts from thinking about how we manage resource scarcity in society. Now, sometimes we manage that through just leaving it to the market, but in health, for good reasons, we have a a publicly funded healthcare system, but that doesn't mean to say that that we don't have any resource scarcity. So it's about trying to help the system, if you like, deal with that scarcity, make the best choices, take costs and benefits of different alternative courses of action into account so that we get the best out of things like the National Health Service for the patients and the population at large. Could you give us an example of what that might entail, what that might look like? Yeah, it could involve, say, working with some of our staff in the School of Health and Life Sciences or the, or the Centre for Living, where they might bring a, uh, along a, a new way of, of delivering care. Say it's in the area of, you know, it could be, say, another of our leading professors, Jim Woodburn. It could be a different way of providing care for people with uh, foot problems or ankle problems. Now, what these studies tend to do that get set up and led by the clinicians like Jim are they they try and look at whether the new way of doing things is more beneficial for patients than the current way of doing things. And then as a health economist, we would be part of that study team and would be looking at things like the resource consequences of the of the new treatment vis-a-vis the old. So is it is it more costly or less costly? What's the magnitude of those extra costs? And then how would we compare that with the extra clinical benefits that hopefully Jim and his team would have been measuring? In light of the coronavirus crisis then, Cam, is the role of a health economist more important ever now? Yeah, I mean, I think the coronavirus is laying a lot of things bare in society, isn't it? And one of the things it's laying bare is precisely that resource scarcity issue that we quite simply don't have enough to meet all of the claims that are being made on the the health service at the moment. So the, the question then becomes is, 
how do we make the right choices for use of those scarce resources at the moment? So all that is, is coming out with things like people's who are not affected by the virus might be having their procedures delayed, postponed, mm -hmm. uh, and some of those are for quite serious conditions like cancer care. Mm -hmm. So we see that being reported. We've seen reports in the press over the weekend about people struggling to, or, or hospitals struggling to give ventilation access to, to everyone. And then, of course, there's the issue of, of testing, where I think some impression seems to have been given that if, if we have mass testing, then that's going to, we're going to be able to test our way out of this by knowing everyone's status. But actually, mass testing in the sense of everybody in the population is impossible to some extent might even be dangerous. How do you mean by that? Well, in terms of possibilities, I mean, the, our government at the UK level is talking about 100,000 tests, but they're nowhere near that at the moment. We have over a million people who work in the NHS who I think would regard, all of whom would regard themselves as frontline workers. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of people who work probably equivalent numbers that work in the social care sector, so it's, it would take us months, even at that, at the current level of provision of testing to even get through that group of people. But that's the group that you would prioritise first, in a sense. So mm -hmm. from a health economics perspective, you would be saying that's where we would get the most benefit for this limited amount of testing resource that we have available. Uh, so that's how a health economist would, would think about it. And we would then try and put some numbers around that. That's very interesting, Cam. Then, if, if if mass testing is impossible and potentially dangerous, then what is the alternative to that? Well, I think the alternative is the good old Scottish approach that we've uh, invoked at the moment. It's, it used to be called staying in, <laughs> uh, and that we have to get we have to get a grip on the on the disease now by doing that. But then we have to gradually roll out testing. Uh, as more and more tests become available and and as their performance of these tests improves as well, because I think that's another reason that we haven't just gone help for leather for testing is because for some of these tests, we don't know how reliable they are. So the last thing we want is for people that think they don't have the virus to be wandering about in the community oh, because a test has told them that they don't, you know. So... That, that, that's the alternative and probably the, the, the best place we can get to with testing, I think, beyond testing symptomatic patients, frontline and key workers, is extending it out into the population, but in a sampling-based way. So we know we, where we, we are testing enough uh, of a sample of the population to be able to track the disease okay. and then be able to act upon that. How big a sample would we be talking about in that instance? Well, I'm not an epidemiologist. You'd need to speak to our uh, health protection Scotland experts on that, and I wouldn't dare to, uh, to, to hazard a guess. But uh, that's another important part of what's going on at the university. As you know, we have a, uh, a strong association with Health Protection Scotland, yeah. and we actually host some of their staff and uh, some of their top epidemiologists like Professor Sharon Hutchison, and I know I'm in regular contact with Sharon because the university wants to support her and Health Protection Scotland in, in whatever they're doing to 
to, to learn lessons from this virus, mainly I think that, that will then, a lot of which will come after the fact that will enable us to plan for the future and plan for future waves of it. How expensive is it to carry out large-scale testing? Well, that that's, again comes back to my initial issue and why I wrote that article for the conversation that uh, that you and I have been discussing is where I cast doubt on, on it, it was portrayed in the headline I was casting doubt on testing, but what I was casting doubt on was that we just wouldn't be able to mass screen the population that that or, or that we would be able to do that. That I was casting doubt on that issue. So I think that it the, the best way to think about it is just that we need to again come back to this, have a more rational sort of planning uh, approach to it so that we are testing enough people to to enable us to then think about how to combat these future waves. How have countries like South Korea managed to successfully stem the spread of COVID-19? And do you think there's anything we can learn from them? God forbid something like this was to ever happen again. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot we can learn. And the, I mean, they are portrayed as the model mass tester, but actually they haven't mass tested at all. You know, they've probably conducted maybe... 400,000, half a million tests. But what they did was they they started testing early. So that was one thing that we could have learned or can, can learn for the future. They then combined that with a process of contact tracing. So tracing everyone that had come into contact with someone who tested positive. And because they got in early, then you're able to, to do all that contact tracing without expending too much resources on it it's it's too late to do that now you know one, once the virus gets into the population more broadly then it gets harder and harder to resource all the possible contact tracing that uh, that would need to to be done so that's why we're in more of a, a shutdown but the, there are other things about Korea that we may not have yet taken fully into account it could be that to do with their culture so they might have a, a population for example that's more more readily uh, takes government advice for example i mean a more extreme example of that of course is china where the government is more interventionist uh, <laughs> anyway uh, so that so these could be playing uh, a factor or a part uh, as well there also is issues about how much do they spend on their healthcare system? So did their healthcare system just have initial capacity already embedded within it, where we have not had that in the UK due to austerity over, say, the last 10 years or so? So all, all, all these things will have to be taken into account in a reckoning uh, at some point in the future where we will be uh, learning lessons and probably some of the results might be quite surprising you know I think the most worrying thing at the moment for me are people who are sure and make that statement that they're sure about what we should be doing nobody knows we've talked about testing there Cam we'll talk a wee bit about the treatment then for COVID-19 the worst case scenario as I was talked that the, the NHS was to collapse and doctors have to basically on the bedside of someone determine whether or not they should get treatment. What would doctors look at to determine who should get access to a ventilator and who shouldn't? Yeah, well, f first of all, I don't envy them. It's going to happen. 
Is it, yeah. is that, is that something you're, you're quite confident that, that, that uh, could happen? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. I mean, like I say, we saw in England, I think it was in Watford General Hospital over the weekend that that almost happened. Now, the more of those cases where it almost happens and it doesn't happen, the better. You know, even as a health economist, I'm not wishing hard decisions on uh, on people. But I just think that inevitably it will we, we'll see cases reported or instances reported in the press where this has happened. Now, what the clinician or the doctor is then will then be looking for, in, as far as I can tell, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a physician by training and uh, I can't necessarily put myself into their heads, but I think they'll be looking at who has the best chance of, of survival. And it, 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 it might really come down to that kind of crude assessment. So what's the, what's the prognosis for one person vis-a-vis -vis another? So you could imagine a situation uh, where, I mean, hopefully this doesn't get too personal for, for some listeners, but you know, if you have a severely ill older person vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a younger, potentially stronger person with a better chance of survival, you could see how the, the clinician might be forced into a situation where they have to plump for, for the latter person as the one that gets priority with respect to access. Given what you're saying there, Cam, it sounds like sort of like health economics. It sounds like quite like a, a cold and personal way to approach things. Is, is that an attribute that you might need to be a successful health economist? I think to an extent it is, but we what we're trying to do is bring a, a framework to, to, to bear on people's thinking and their analysis if, if there's time to do analysis when we're making these types of decision and that framework I think health economists would contend is actually aimed at ensuring that we get the the most benefit for patients and the population out of the limited resources that we've got so actually if you apply it then and, and those are the results where we're, we're actually maximizing benefits to to the population then in a sense that's actually not so cold-hearted as the as the analytical framework might might imply because if you think about that example i used before if we don't do any analysis and we make the wrong decision then we're actually causing more harm than if we hadn't thought about the the cost benefit trade-offs if you like it sounds like then the general public would be broadly supportive of that way of thinking i think they would i mean they, they don't necessarily want that situation to arise but I do think that when you put it, these kind of, in, in my experience as a researcher and, and, and having engaged with a lot of uh, members of the public, either individually or in things like focus groups that we conduct for our research, they understand these issues and they will have views and opinions as to what should count when we are actually making decisions that involve competing claims on, on our precious NHS resources. Thank you, Cam. That's very insightful into, in terms of how we're dealing with the coronavirus pandemic from a health economics perspective. But as we mentioned at the top of the show, you are the Pro Vice Chancellor of Research and you sit on the university's executive board. What's it like trying to run Glasgow Caledonia University during this pandemic? 
Right. Well, I mean, the first thing is it's been a privilege. It's, uh, I mean, I've been here 10 years now, only four years in the role of Pro Vice Chancellor, but this has been our biggest challenge. But in many respects, it's been the, it's been the greatest sort of privilege that, uh, that I've had in terms of having been, being involved in, in us meeting this challenge. And I say that because, I mean, I'll come back to Executive Board in a, in a minute, but it's been the response of the staff and the students really that's 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 helped make this our response work uh, or our reactions work uh, to to date i just think that uh, collectively everyone i mean well even before then as a university for the common good you know i just think we we do a lot of really good things under under that banner but i think this this has really uh, exemplified it with respect to executive uh, how do we do it? Well, we we meet every day. So I had a, a meeting this morning. Every day at ten o'clock, we have up to our scheduled for that. Only now, sort of two to three weeks into this thing, are we beginning not to use that full two hours? But we're still meeting uh, every day. All sorts of issues come to uh, to to that group. But I think what the the good thing about meeting every day is just been that we've been able to react and respond collectively and quickly to the myriad of situations that have arisen, you know, from, say, overseas students being stuck in Caledonian court because they can't go home. Uh, mm -hmm. What would we do about that? There's been various issues with respect to research. So we had a few PhD oral exams called VIVAs coming up. And they've taken place now over the last few weeks uh, remotely, all successfully, thanks to the tremendous efforts of of the staff. So that's that's just a a couple of examples, and we 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 deal with these uh, exec uh, as well. I think each of us have our own portfolio to deal with. So I I established a research continuity group. Okay. But that that's really just to mirror what exec's doing, but for research in particular. And that's been able to meet, that's met uh, just, we've just been meeting once a week, once face to face before we all left the campus. And then we've met another uh, three or four times uh, remotely since. And again, these these meetings have been enormously valuable in sorting out uh, a lot of the issues like the Viva issue for PhDs to which I referred. But we have a lot of you know, PhD students will be worried because what, are they, if they can't get access to a lab, can't collect data, the same applies to a lot of externally funded research projects. So we're gathering together all that information and evidence about that just to see what the consequences are and that will allow us then to uh, hopefully act on that, that information. But that then gets fed back into executive boards so that it's not just me and people in my portfolio left alone to make those decisions, but we're doing it as a collective. Good. Well, certainly as a member of staff, Cam, that sounds very reassuring that, that we're all on, on top of everything. Do you and, and the rest of your team, do you see a point when we're going to get back to normal, as it were? Uh, that's a really tricky question, isn't it? You know, you look at countries, you know, going back to, a, in some senses, that's a, a much, as much a research question as an organisational question that, you know that China has started sort of relaxing the constraints it's put on its population, and that that's four months into it. And only today, though, they reported that there's been a little blip upwards in numbers of of cases, so they might have to 
do it in, do it in the form of a staggered start, so to speak. So that's that becomes very tricky for us because that takes us up to the beginning of the academic year, and um, I think that'll be that'll be a major decision: is how are we going to operate in trimester A for 2020-2021 academic year? Uh, is it going to be in uh, shutdown mode, partial working mode, or are we going to be fully fully open? Uh, and I, I I don't think we have the answer to that yet. I'm glad it's better minds than myself that are that are working and finding <laughs> answers, Cameron. I've no doubt that you and the rest of the executive board will will get that sorted. I just like to say that's been really interesting to talk to you, Cam. I, I've learned a lot about that from the health economics perspective and learned how the university's been run during the shutdown. So thank you very much for your time today. That's my pleasure. I hope it, I hope it was helpful and that uh, people find it insightful like you, uh, like you say, Craig. So thanks for the opportunity. Excellent. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show. And I hope you join us again soon when we'll be talking to another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast.